<笑>鬼岛之音 ，Ghost Island Media。Hey guys, it's Emily Wai Wu, producer of the Taiwan Take. We are back. In the past year, since our last interview here, we at Ghost Island Media we've launched and wrapped a new Mandarin show about China, a Mandarin and French duolingual show about France and Taiwan, and a new season of the English climate show Waste Not Why Not. But here at the Taiwan Take, we are back, and we're going to stick around for this fall. And today, a conversation with Steve Chen, co-founder of YouTube. Steve Chen was born in Taiwan and moved to the U.S. at age eight. He founded YouTube in 2005 and sold it to Google for 1.65 billion dollars. Steve moved back to Taiwan in 2019 before the pandemic and lives here now with his wife and two sons. Today, he's an investor, an advisor, a founder, and a role model for a whole generation of not just Taiwanese or Taiwanese Americans or Asian Americans, but aspiring students. They look to software engineers like Steve, and they try to figure out how do I do what he did. My conversation with Steve today is a bit different from a usual business interview, and this is why. Our chat took place in a different context. We were part of this year's Taiwanese American Scholarship Fund ceremony. Now, student debt runs high in the U.S. There are currently 46 million Americans owing almost 1.75 trillion dollars because of student debt. And for Asian Americans, a study showed that the gap between financial resources and college fees is the largest of any groups in the U.S. For the academic year of 2019. Before the global pandemic, the average spent on a single year at a private four-year college in the U.S. was close to thirty-three thousand U.S. dollars. The Taiwanese American community is close-knit, but there's one group of Taiwanese Americans that's out of reach for the support network. They are students from low-income families. They live all across America, and for some, being Taiwanese American or half Taiwanese is an identity not discussed at home. The Taiwanese American Scholarship Fund. Since they began in 2014, they have helped close to 100 students. Let's hear from some of these students over the years. My mom works very hard to support me and my sister, and I'm very thankful that she's been able to raise me. But we don't really have any way to pay for my college education. I felt a bit guilty spending so much of my parents' money on college. And COVID honestly has been really hard financially, emotionally,、um, physically on my family. And so having the scholarship means a whole lot. There is a common misconception that Taiwanese American children all come from wealthy families. This is not the case. Our main mission at the Taiwanese American Scholarship Fund is to provide Taiwanese American youth with the opportunity to pursue higher education in order to help build their foundations for a better future. Because of the five thousand dollars scholarship, which is a lot of money, a lot of money,、um, that was able to pay for about six months of rent, including groceries, utilities,、um, and extra tuition if I needed it to. And this scholarship has allowed me to. 
really pull off the stress of um, financial, the financial stress of college. This will allow me to have a better financial state after college. I plan on doing a work study during college to cover my living expenses in the future. But by receiving this scholarship, I will be able to allocate most of my time towards my education and schoolwork during my freshman year. Since 2014, we've given out close to a million dollars worth of scholarships across the nation. What we found is that not only are the students grateful for the financial assistance, but something else arose in themselves as well. Pride. As a Taiwanese American who takes a lot of pride in her heritage and background, the bonds and community I've made with my Taiwanese peers have really given me the strength to uncover my identity. And be proud of my race and my background. I have this huge Taiwanese flag up in my dorm freshman year, and I'm actually really excited for this flag to have another home this year. This scholarship serves as a constant reminder that I couldn't have been as accomplished without my Taiwanese culture and my Taiwanese family. Of course, it relieves a lot of pressure on my mother and I, and it helps me realize that there's a community of Taiwanese people out there that are willing to look out for each other, and that's really comforting to me. There's no doubt that we are all looking looking out for one another. But perhaps more importantly, we're also creating the next generation of community leaders. I understand that money is not free. And so one day when I'm in a position of financial stability, I hope to be able to give back to the Taiwanese American community. I plan on majoring in political science in the hopes of becoming an ambassador for the United States. And uh, with this career in mind, I hope to one day empower the API community and also use my voice as an agent of change. So if you are a student in need or interested in being a donor, please feel free to reach out anytime. We look forward to meeting you soon. As the saying goes, it takes a village to raise a child. If you can, please join us and be part of the village. I am forever grateful and the words can never express um, how appreciative I really am for all of you. Um, so thank you so much for pushing me to achieve and carry out all my dreams. It means so much to my family as I will be able to um, pursue my dreams of becoming a first generation college student. I just want to really thank TASF for believing in me, for supporting me, and once again, thank you for investing in my future. This year, students are receiving $7,500 and another $7,500 for the next year if they keep up with their grades. And every year at the induction ceremony, TASF also gives an award to someone in the Taiwanese-American community. They call this the Visionary Leadership Award. Last year, the award went to Patrick Lee, co-founder of Rotten Tomatoes, and Debbie Sue, CEO of Open Table. California Congressman Ted W. Liu and philanthropist Joseph Fan have also been recognized. So this was the context where my conversation with Steve Chen took place. Steve was this year's recipient for the Visionary Leadership Award. Steve's story from being an immigrant to helping build the internet landscape as we know it today is an inspiring one. Steve and I caught up over video while he was in Hawaii. We talked about fitting in, quitting school, and setting up YouTube as a dating service. I asked him about leadership and teamwork and what it means to him to be now reconnecting with Taiwan. Here's Steve. You know 
I mean, I think um, what's attracting me to the conversation today is that it's quite a bit different in terms of context. I mean, I think very few people would be able to know the background of growing up in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, what that was like. Having gone through that experience of growing up in the Midwest, being the only sort of uh, Asian-American, Taiwanese-American family within that entire school district, and kind of having to juggle between uh, what it's like in the morning as you start going off into school, and then what it's like when you're back home with the only Asian-American family that's within that entire school district. Uh, and going through that day in, day out, there were definitely sort of challenges with that. But overall, looking back, I thought it helped a lot with growing who, who I am today. You know, um, so I want to head back to the very beginning. So, Steve, you were you were born in Taiwan, spoke Mandarin, grew up in Taipei, and you were eight years old when you and your family moved to Illinois outside of Chicago. Now you were in third grade and you didn't speak any English. So fast forward to high school. All of a sudden you're at a very competitive boarding school, the Illinois Mathematics Science Academy. So talk to us about young Steve growing up at this time. What was life like? What was learning like? What was something really difficult you had to overcome during those years as an immigrant, as an Asian American, as a student? I think the overarching project for us, for my brother, myself, was always just trying to see how to, what was it like to try to fit in? Um, And fitting in had very different sort of formulas and definitions, uh, depending on whether I was at home I was at school uh, and it was always um, sort of a learning experience for me throughout that entire process. You know, especially in the Midwest, it's certain hours of the day displaying just almost a very different personality and and the things. And then um, uh, I want to say it was it was growing up to be able to understand what was actually supposed to be accepted and what wasn't accepted. And a lot of that was on relying on just individual decisions and individual learning uh, along the way. I think there was always taking into context uh, coming back home, having the conversations with the family, with the parents, yet knowing that I would still have to ultimately be making some of the the decisions that will actually work within um, the school environment when I'm outside of the family. I think growing up as an immigrant at the ages of sort of uh, eight and six and being exposed to it overnight, yeah, it kind of forced yourself to have to pretty quickly grasp how to survive on your your, yeah. your own. Uh, and then I think, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, at the age of 15, freshman in high school was the time that I enrolled in the Math and Science Academy. So it was a boarding school about 45 minutes southwest of Chicago. You're you're living with uh, other 15-year-olds at the time, uh, dormitories, but it was a very open environment, which um, not only is it just uh, the removal of having parents, but really the school trusted the students themselves to be able to kind of guide themselves, to be able to find their own direction. But I think through those stumbling and through those mistakes, I think that's when ultimately the, the lessons that I learned all throughout those years the first time that I did it, it wasn't the right way to do it. Um, and second time wasn't. But it's continued to sort of learn something along the way and still having that commitment and belief in, in yourself to be able to come through with it. 
Yeah, you just you spoke about that jump into a different culture. I mean, I remember I was pretty it was really jarring for me too to switch language and culture like that. But I think when we were going to school back then, there was internet. There wasn't YouTube yet, that kind of this online sharing culture that you helped to create. There wasn't TikTok, Instagram. I mean, looking back in terms of connecting with either your friends back at home or connecting with family members, how much has technology played into finding your own niche within the internet space or kind of being more okay with being yourself because the world is now all of a sudden endless? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a gradual process and through through the internet, through more connections and through more network, just being able to be more connected. I think one, making that personal decision to, to be wishing to be more open um, and accepting the sort of the uniqueness and the differences in character. Uh, but then I think the internet definitely uh, plays a role in that. You're no longer only confined to within the neighborhood that you live in or the people that are boarding your school bus to go to school. No, but it's much bigger now. All of a sudden, uh, uh, as you start with both the internet and especially as I started entering college and the connections there, to be able to really explore and get encouragement and to be able to find other peers that are interested in whatever you're interested in, however esoteric it is. And I think that uh, still takes some time. It's, it doesn't happen overnight to be able to slowly gain that confidence that when you're thinking differently, uh, it's not wrong. Don't discourage it, kind of encourage it. But it does take, um, I think, a lot of time in the actual battlefields to be able to see that it does amount to something. Starting from high school, it was the every week at the math and science academy there was one day that was left open sort of no classes and left open for the students to explore it was an exploration day and so whatever it is you had these um semester-long projects but the idea was that you're not attending a standardized class schedule out of the one day out of the week but it's really whatever it is that you wanted to explore write that down and you were able to explore it um, I love what you said about the one free day when you were in high school to free to explore whatever it is. Um, I think it's great. Well, by the time you got to college um, at Illinois Champaign, you've already started on this STEM track. But then when you got to campus, um, social wise or extracurricular, how did you find your community? How did you find your groove? What were some of the first steps that you had to take? No, um, those days it was really, uh, I think for the first time juggling between living in an environment where what you're studying, what you're attending school for, what you're learning, what you're working on, personal interests, and then your personal friends, they're all for the first time kind of intertwined with one another. Uh, and so if I were to compare it to high school, where it was one day exploring what you're really interested in doing and being able to have the liberty to do it, uh, all of a sudden it became seven days a week. You could do whatever it is that you wanted to do at the hours that you wanted to do it. And, you know, going to U of I at the time, there was a, a lot of um, investing. Mark Andreessen, Netscape and Mozilla was being experimented with and built there. And to be able to see that for the first time really opened up, up your eyes to be able to see really that with with a simple access to 
a computer that has one cable plugged into the rest of the internet and the ways that you can connect and the ways that you can actually collaborate with other people. And that all happened during those few compressed years from high school to college. Uh, and it wasn't just me, but it was actually meeting with many other people that had kind of the same backgrounds that were driven by the same same interests and passions. And all of a sudden, it's so easy to be able to meet and to be able to connect with people like that. As I started thinking about what ultimately led me to fly out to Silicon Valley, it was really through this network and through these channels and through these connections um, that ultimately got me to board that flight to move to San Francisco. I remember the it was one quick interview and it was with um, Max Levchin over ICQ at the time in 1999 to move out to Silicon Valley. If you were to look at the first three engineers at PayPal who started it with Max Levchin, they were all um, Illinois Math and Science Academy. They were one year ahead of me. Uh, and then they were all computer science majors at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. They, they were the ones that came out directly to, to Silicon Valley. And at that time, it was so difficult for them to be able to do that recruiting. And so it was always trying to just find other people that fit that same exact background of uh, Math and Science Academy, U of I. Did you know them in school or is it more an alum network kind of effect? Yeah, I did know them. Uh, we were one year uh, apart, but it was it was still staying pretty close. And I think at that time, it was the final semester at U of I. I never finished that degree, but they came down to, look, this this job, it was the, the position is open for you. We would love for you to join us, but uh, it has to be now. It can't be seven months from now. Uh, that ICQ chat was it. So uh, that was, again, one of the quick decisions of two, three days of having that conversation and then boarding the plane and deboarding in Silicon Valley. Um, so ICQ, if we're not all familiar with ICQ, uh, for some of the younger students here, it's an early day messaging system. <laughs> um, I remember it was a string of n numbers, right? Your ID was a string of numbers. Yeah, um, yeah. And then ICQ became AOL AIM and then Microsoft the messenger, messenger system or something yeah. messenger yeah yeah well let's um i want to talk about that that decision to to leave school and go to silicon valley so it's 1999 and you're 21 years old you say hey mom and dad i've got a friend he's building a company in, in silicon valley it's something about the internet really exciting i need to go but they were actually opposed to this they thought it was risky but you still went so tell us what, what happened how did you make this decision yeah, uh, no, I mean, I think that uh, now with my own kids, it's it's always odd to be telling this story because I think now I would be on the side of telling the kids, don't do what your your father did. Uh, and I mean, this happened so many times uh, through the it, I, I, I think that um, it wasn't an irrational decision. I mean, I think that there was there was some thinking and there's a lot of logic that goes behind it. Look, the opportunity to come back to the university was always there. It was technically a leave of absence um, and not dropping out of the school, knowing that at the same time, that leave of absence decision wasn't the, going to be the same for the opportunities in moving out to Silicon Valley. I think that that was really just a once and only conversation that I was going to have with that opportunity at that right time, with the right 
group of entrepreneurs. Uh, and it was going to be in November of uh, 1999. And if I didn't take that opportunity, uh, that wasn't going to be there for the taking um, in the future. Frankly, I think that many of these decisions are, uh, regardless of the magnitude of the life implications there, I think that they're relatively straightforward decisions. But the hesitation is, it took a lot of work to just be able to say, I'm gonna completely change the, the path that I've been on the last 20 years, and then I'm gonna be boarding a plane. Uh, and we'll see how it goes. I mean, yeah, obviously, I think I think at the time you were around really smart people. They all eventually made really important companies. And so you were in the scene. You knew this was going to be a big deal. Um, but what you said, something really interesting to me was that you could always come back. Right. If this didn't work out, you could have always come back to school. Um, was it easier to make that decision because you had that safety net or would it have been easier to make the decision if you didn't? Um, yeah, I know. I think relatively uh, the the decision would have been easier if I was already in the precise time of decision making in my life. Right. I think the, the difficult part was especially so close to actually getting the degree. But there was no I mean, the, the, it was a weekend of thinking through it. And it was basically Monday of flying out to Palo Alto, California at the time to start work. I do think that a lot of these when I look back at many of these decisions that had very large life implications, um, they weren't difficult decisions to make when I worked through actually the actual pros and cons and trying to work out the the logic behind decisions. But it does take um, courage to act through it, to be able to put those decisions to action. I think that it's important to go through that rationalization process to go through the logic and thinking through everything. Um, but, you know, do you have faith? Maybe it takes a bit of time, but do you have faith in, and belief in yourself and, and the logic that, that you can make these decisions and just trust yourself to do it? Um, so let's speak through again. So now that you're at Silicon Valley, um, you've gone through PayPal. Um, after PayPal, you founded YouTube in 2005. You sold it really quickly the next year. Um, but you stuck around with the company. And I want to work, I want to ask you next about teamwork and leadership because um, some of the students here, alums here, are now young professionals. So there, there's two kinds of leaders. There's the kind of leaders, they always knew they wanted to be a leader. They, they said, I will command a ship. I will. This is what I'm set out to do. And then there's the other kind who get picked to be captain. Um, what kind of leader were you? And what would you say to young professionals who find themselves in a situation where they where they have to now step up. It can be very scary, but they now have to step up and be that leader that others expect them to be. Um, I think for myself, it was uh, it was really focused on I think trying to get the feedback from others or just trying to gather as much information as possible before making the decisions. And I think a lot of it is within the historical context of. Uh, before starting YouTube, it was at PayPal where I had my first opportunity of running, leading, and managing a team. I was I was 20 years old when I joined PayPal. I was the youngest person there in 99 when it was starting out. But all throughout from 2000, 2001, 2002, I was always still the youngest person at PayPal. And even by the time when 
I was running my final project, which was the the first internationalization, localization of PayPal for uh, launching in China at the time. And I was running a, a team of sort of 22 engineers. And I don't remember if I was the youngest, but I may have been the youngest person on that team. And I think that the only way to to really run that team and to, to earn the respect of the rest of the team was really to be able to ensure that everybody felt that their their voices were heard and that if they had, uh, regardless of kind of whatever their actual titles were uh, or what their experiences were, uh, what mattered was always still to be able to hear whether it's positive or negative feedback when it came to the actual product and, and when it came to the actual work that we were doing. Um, and I think that that translated to uh, the the YouTube days as well. As we were starting out, it was always I was always interested to be able to hear going around the room to be able to make sure that everybody uh, would be able to get their voices heard and to be able to encourage that. And in so many ways, specific to Silicon Valley, I think that it's critical to to make sure that. Um, look, I think I, I think nobody's title is just idea person. I think like uh, good ideas can come from anywhere from regardless of what your day-to-day tasks and t- uh, job is. I think some of the best ideas were just coming from everywhere. And I think that uh, from our standpoint, it was always, look, if you have an idea, send it to this mailing list, send it to me or just sit down with me and let's talk about it. And whenever uh, we talked about anything, it was always going around the room to make sure that the mouthpiece was available to, to anybody to be able to use, to be able to say and vocalize uh, what it is they want. So the whole sort of playing field, the infrastructure of the the teams, it was all pretty level when it came to making uh, on the engineering side. So listen to your teammates, um, whether you're a team member or a leader, but listen to a lot and that's how you get the best ideas. Um, I think that's how you get the inspiration rather than thinking of it as a job. It becomes more of a, uh, for everybody involved, it becomes part of what uh, they have some ownership in, right? Like they, they feel like um, this is, it's not just uh, something that I'm doing to fulfill the hours of my workday, but rather um, I'm contributing and building to something that came out of my own head. That is part of my idea. And if you were to go back and look back to, I think a lot of the early, early, um, days of PayPal or, or YouTube, some of those ideas, they, they were really just part coming out of the heads of the engineers and to be able to have the, from the top down, to be able to say that this is a pretty open gate. If you do have the ideas, we welcome these ideas to come out and we're willing to stake and put the risks of the, the company behind any of these ideas, because it's just as likely that an idea coming from you will be successful. So speaking of ideas and YouTube, um, at this point, um, we have a question coming in from Sophia, um, this year's new recipient. Um, She's wondering, how did you start to have the idea, the vision for YouTube? What influenced you? How did you envision how how it would evolve and grow? Yeah, well... I think in Silicon Valley, like uh, as soon as you get fundraising series A, one of the first things you do is you um, enlist the help from a third party PR agency. And the first thing you talk about during that PR agency meeting is the answer to that question about how did you come up with this idea and what was the inspiration for this idea, Uh, which results in uh, a lot of practice and rehearsing in being able to answer this question with 
a fictitious story rather than how what we were really thinking about. Um, in in this case, I'll talk about the real story behind YouTube. Was uh, it was always still getting together with two other co-founders, two other co-founders that were from the very early days of PayPal, uh, and especially with Chad Hurley, who I had worked with from the first. Sunday that I had arrived in Silicon Valley to work at PayPal. He was the user interface UI UX person that was behind all of the sort of first four or five years of products at PayPal. And we had worked together very closely on developing and he would be coming in with the, the vision on the UI side and I would be coming in from the engineering side, but we would meet in the middle in terms of definitions of the product. Uh, and we'd always talked about doing something else that something else ended up being uh, YouTube, but the story behind YouTube when we initially launched it for the first few weeks was that it was more of a dating site in dating service. And it was for just videos around introducing yourself and giving your personal in a video format rather than just a text and images format. And uh, there was a there was a service I think or I think it's still out there now uh, hotternot.com uh, that was also was in Mountain View it was right uh, next to the the PayPal offices all the time and we used to get together uh, for coffee in the afternoons to talk about what are the things that you're thinking about doing next and it just seemed like um, uh, what an obviously what an obvious missing component uh, to hot or not was to actually just create just add the actual video elements to it um, but no after a week of launching the service we had zero videos uploaded onto onto YouTube. Uh, during that time frame as well, Google Video had launched, and, uh, and it was more for generalized videos. Anything that you wanted to upload in video format, you could upload it onto Google. And so at that time, we thought, well, why don't we completely change it around? And uh, I think the main key difference between YouTube and Google Video early on was that it was really it was based on this uh, digital millennium copyright, uh, the DMCA in deciding what was permitted and allowed to stay on the service. And so we didn't have a team that was surveying and looking at the pieces of content that was being uploaded. Anything that was uploaded to YouTube would automatically be uh, transcoded so it could be uh, viewed within, within any browser and it would be immediately available to be viewed and shared by anybody out there. And so uh, at that time it was then saying, well, why don't we make it more generic to allow for any piece of content from anybody that wanted to upload videos online. And as soon as we made that happen, the amount of videos just started flooding in. Um, the, and then I think the, the key thing is not just the number of videos, but the specific viral videos that started coming in where people were actually, they were doing the work to be able to be the marketing and the, the distributors for the pieces of content that were becoming popular on YouTube. Um, you're credited as having the first cat video. Is that right? Hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of that content that, uh, that was uploaded. I mean, I had, I think I have the first cooking video on YouTube. I have the first, uh, uh, cat video on YouTube. Uh, we were, there's still talk about if there's any interest in creating an NFT around a, a cat video on, on YouTube, whether or not we should do that. But yeah. I think in hindsight, 
it's obvious what YouTube is looking at what it is today, what we should have done. But look, I, uh, it's a very different playing field when you're in the startup doing this for the first time. Uh, I mean, now that people are devoting their entire careers, hiring entire teams, and all they're doing is creating content that they're uploading for free onto a service out there, right? Uh, I mean, that there were so many competitors to that at the time. It was so new, so foreign, and the, the amount of viewers that you were getting were so limited compared to what it is now that it's hard to see where it, where it has evolved. Um, but I, I think you start to see glimpses of that when we started seeing some of those early videos I have back in 2005, when most of the videos out there were still only getting a 10, 20 views, but then Nike tried uh, to upload a, a video onto YouTube. And it was, uh, it was a video of um, Brazilian soccer player, uh, Ronaldinho juggling a soccer ball off the goalpost. And uh, it was like a minute and a half video, but that ended up getting a million video views. And they were shocked by that, that they, nothing like that has ever worked that well for Nike on the internet. And so they called this up. Um, to go up to Oregon at the time to fly up to talk to them about what are the ways that that we could work together. But even Nike then they they uploaded two video they uploaded the same video using two different accounts. One of them was uh, under an official Nike channel, and the other one was under the account name was and I still remember it was Joe B J O E B as generic of a username as you could get to make it look like it was coming from a user generated piece of content. And the the video was a little bit shaky and it looked like it was somebody that was on the sidelines filming, that just happened to get invited that was filming um, Ronaldinho juggling the soccer ball. And and that was the video that received the million video views. And I think for them, that was just uh, something that they didn't expect uh, to be with the types of content that they're actually creating with the amount of money that they're spending in terms of the creativity and the marketing uh, to be generating this content yet to be able to have, make it seem like it's coming from users. And that's what's the, that's what's driving people to want to share this, this content. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's a fascinating story. I think anybody who's studying advertising or marketing right now would probably uh, get a nice kick out of that case study, right? Being as like the, one of the first. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so for students who are interested in more about PayPal or YouTube during this time, Steve has done a lot of interviews um, on probably all searchable on YouTube right now. Um, so I wanted to wrap with a final question. Um, now bringing you back to Taiwan. So you came back well before COVID. You came back here with um, your family, your two sons and your wife, Jamie. So I want to ask you about what this connection back to Taiwan means for you and your family, but also combining that with a, this is a question from Kenneth, also this year's recipient. Um, now that you've been back for a few years, are there any new things that you've learned from moving here, perhaps about yourself or your identity, about the culture in Taiwan, or even the differences between Taiwan now versus before? How's it being back, your connection to Taiwan? Well, I mean, I think uh, there's so much to talk about there, right? I mean, I think... Uh... For me, the the single biggest motivation for the move was really for uh, it was kind of a reversal of what I went through, but being able to give that to the kids. And so uh, when I 
moved to the U.S. when I was eight years old. We moved back to Taiwan when my older son was nine years old. And it was, I don't know, I guess in a way I felt that uh, just being in the San Francisco Bay Area growing up as an Asian American doesn't give you enough, it doesn't give enough, enough visibility, enough um enough of the Asian part of being Asian American, I really wanted them to be able to uh, have and to be able to participate and to be completely immersed in that experience. Uh, and I thought that originally, this was a few months before COVID broke out. So it was originally supposed to be just kind of a two year experience. Uh, and we're, we're going on to year four, but there's, there's no regret that we made that decision about getting the, the kids to get that exposure to be able to be really truly there in in Taiwan. I think that's really part to uh, that it would have been difficult to be able to teach him some of the to often some of the experiences and skills uh, that they have now without being able to see that that part. So. I think that uh, there was that part of it. And then I think that was also really kind of interesting from my standpoint too, of uh, after spending over 20 years in Silicon Valley, and I think having seen uh, both from working at a startup to being uh, investors, entrepreneurs, um, advisors, so on, um, I always wanted to, to do something outside of Silicon Valley to see to be able to see whether or not this was possible to be able to create the sort of especially more in the software rather than the semiconductor side what was it like to be able to create these software startups and to be able to do it from outside of Silicon Valley and I think I learned a lot through this whole process of the challenges that um, I, you don't see as challenges I think when you're in Silicon Valley but then when you're trying to do some of the same things and trying to build these uh, the startups. Uh, with a global vision rather than just some a uh, product for Taiwan itself, but doing it completely outside of Silicon Valley. What was that like? And I've, you know, I started a company and I invested in a few companies while I've been in Taiwan and um, I'm not giving up, but it's not easy. It's, it's, I think uh, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of things that I think Silicon Valley has to offer that after 20 after 20 years spent there you don't realize how easy um it makes it but um i think it's still there are plenty of things that taiwan has to offer that's as an advantage compared to silicon valley and i wish that there are ways that we can better take advantage of that all right some quick easy questions about taiwan you ready yeah all right what's your favorite taiwanese food like uh, new lo mian. New lo Okay, I was gonna ask you, new lo mian or ding tai fung? Um, uh, it's hard to stay low carbs in in Taiwan, huh? It's <laughs> All right, uh, hot tea or boba tea? Oh, hot tea. Tennis Actually, or bat? You know, um, I, 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 but I would say the uh, the coffee in Taiwan. Uh, as much as uh, you know, I was gonna be on on the uh, the board of Blue Bottle, and as much as the, all that about coffee in San Francisco, the amount of great coffee, the cappuccinos, espressos in Taiwan, it's remarkable. Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, um, you've been spotted watching pro basketball in Taiwan, a new league called the P League. Which team do you root for? Yeah, yeah, the uh, the new Taipei City Kings. Um, <laughs> Uh, finally, if you could pick an actor to play you in a movie about Steve Chen, who would it be? Uh, 
It's a hard one. Deciding between, I don't know, Tom Cruise or, or Brad Pitt or something. <laughs> <laughs> they, they would have to try out and I could decide. Um, all right. Well, that's that's all we have for today, actually. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you for uh, answering all the questions and thank you for sharing all your stories. Oh, wow. I've certainly learned a lot. Speaking as a young international student in America in the 1990s, I certainly had my trauma. But like Steve said, having gone through that process and figuring out for yourself what decisions to make, who to be, that was an important step. And then I remember when I found something I was really good at, how exhilarating it was. I was no longer judged by my inability to speak or to fit in. Instead, I was my passion. I was something that made me very happy. And eventually, out of that sense of happiness came confidence. And with enough confidence came the willingness to try new things. For Steve, it meant changing your life over just one weekend, taking that leap of faith to do something crazy. There's a lot of takeaways from this conversation. But what stood out to me was the importance of surrounding yourself with people who inspire you. Steve talked about finding his peoples in college everyone who were into computers at the time, and together they figured out they could connect to each other and build things. And so when the opportunity came to make crazy decisions over and over again, he succeeded. Well, some might say that he was lucky, that he was at the right place at the right time, that he knew the right people, that he came of age with an engineering community during the rise of the internet, and that he built a video platform just as people were figuring out how to use the internet. Maybe. But for young students who may be listening, I leave you with this story from when I was 19. I was in my first year in college, and I met an Academy Award-winning filmmaker with an extraordinary career in journalism. His name was Peter Davis. I asked him, Peter, how did you get so lucky to be at exactly the right place at the right time? He looked at me and then he wrote something on a piece of paper and he handed it to me. I had that note taped to my wall the entire time I was in school. It said, luck is the residue of design. My name is Emily Waiwu and this is the Taiwan Take. Today's interview was a part of the Taiwanese American Scholarship Fund 2022 ceremony. Thank you, Chun Yan Chen, Sean Yu, and Sean Chow for inviting us to be a part of the community. Thank you, Christopher Den Balmaceda, for coordinating the interview. And thank you, Steve, for speaking with us. This is Ghost Island Media, based in Taipei, Taiwan. Gerald Williams is our production assistant. Sophia Zuo helped with research. <laughs>